Uh, all right, so we are today, it's a big day. We are wrapping up a series of sermons that we've been calling the Upside Down Message of Jesus. It's a series of messages that we've been working our way through what's known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a set of teachings that Jesus did very early in his ministry that set up a lot of what he taught all throughout his ministry. And there are eight different Beatitudes that we've been looking at, and we're going to get to the last one today. Now, the first time I ever heard like an, a sermon series expounding on these was forever ago. My pastor, Dave Johnson, who comes and preaches here in, in the winter and spring because he's from Minnesota and he's smart like that. Um, but Dave uh, went really in depth and he did one, there's eight verses, there's eight, well, there's eight Beatitudes. He did one per week and really went in depth. Um, I'm not as good, apparently, a teacher as Dave because it takes a lot longer. Anybody want to guess how long it's taken us to just do these first seven verses? How many? It's been five months. Five months. Because we want to go, right? We want to dig in deep. We want to dig in deep. And that's part of what we want to do at Hope. We, we want to settle in on a passage or a teaching so that it goes deep in. Like, I'm just not that interested in showing up with good advice for everybody week after week so we come back and learn some more advice, but nothing really sticks or has a chance to really go deep in us. So that's part of why sometimes we just do a series that'll last a month, and sometimes it's like, hey, let's just see how long this takes, and that's just how Jim and I both kind of work through stuff and preach, and so that's what we've been doing and uh, one time we, during this series, you might remember, we spent four weeks on one verse, right? And so this week, ready for this? We are going to spend one week covering not one verse, not two verses, but three verses. I mean, buckle up, people. Buckle up. I'll try to get you home before the Cardinals kick off at two. So just kidding. All right, so, but let's read through all of these scriptures, the Beatitudes. We're going to start at the first one in verse chapter 3. It's up on the screen. Let's read together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be Filled. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. See, all of these sayings, all of these beatitudes, this stuff is completely upside down, right? All of the things that Jesus is preaching and teaching and saying here and spends his ministry expounding on, these are all countercultural, subversive things. What Jesus is doing when he says these kind of upside down, backwards things is he is messing with our own kingdoms. He's messing with your and my realities. I mean, think about it. Just even the first one. Blessed are the what? Poor in spirit. What? Jesus, what? They would have wondered, what are you talking about? I mean, and we discovered that that means blessed are the broken, right? But even with that, it's like, seriously, Jesus, the broken? Are you kidding me? No, thanks. I've spent my whole life trying not to be broken, not to look broken. I'm not going to be broken. I'm self-sufficient. I work hard. So no thanks. No brokenness for me. 
See, that's how the kingdom of this world comes across to us, right? Or, or blessed are those who mourn. Now, there's a tricky one. For a lot of us, that's really tricky, especially culturally. Some of us have grown up in places where you just keep it all really close to the vest. We don't mourn. We don't get stuff out here because mourning means to get in here, what's going on here for real, to get that out here. And in order to get what's going on inside of us outside to get the comfort, we would actually have to say something other than, how you doing? Fine. Fine, I'm fine, right? Blessed are those who mourn. But you also discovered that, that the wording there means for they and they alone get the comfort. To get the comfort, you've got to get real. You have to get it out. Very di- different. This kingdom of God is very, very different. Uh, how about blessed are the peacemakers, which we spent the last number of weeks looking at, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Think about the people that Jesus was speaking this to for the very first time. They would have been like, peacemakers? Clearly, Jesus, you haven't been paying attention to how our world works. The way it works around here is that the people who are in charge and have power, like what you need to say, Jesus is blessed are the winners, Blessed are those who have their own way, get their own way, because they're strong enough to force their own way. Being a peacemaker, ah, that doesn't work. I mean, come on, being a peacemaker, Jesus, that, that would mean, you know, we all have opinions, and a peacemaker would have to require, you know, them having some humility about their opinions, and it's very hard to be humble when I am right, right? Just me. These are all upside down. They are all backwards to our way of thinking in our world. But Jesus describes for us the way things work. If you want to follow him, if you want to live in his kingdom, his rule, his way, his path, if you want to follow him, that's how it works in his story. So you want to follow Jesus? Get ready because his kingdom will challenge and subvert every other kingdom, including yours, including mine. Now, the good thing about that is that every one of these things points us to life. This isn't just deprivation or grinding to get through to prove that we're somehow spiritual. No, Jesus is inviting us into a pathway that leads to life, the only way that leads to life, which means we have to set aside things that just kind of seem like normally that's the way you'd have to do it if you want to get ahead. And Jesus says, no, no, it's This way, this stuff is always very different. In the kingdom of God, it's very different than the kingdom of this world. And every one of these beatitudes is mind-bending, which is why we've taken so long to just work through them. And you only scratched the surface, really. But they're upside down. We get through the first seven, and we get to the last one, which we haven't read yet, but we will in a moment. And this one, friends, this one takes the cake. This has got to be the most upside-down thing Jesus has said yet. In fact, Jesus abandons his model on this one. Of the others, he said, blessed are this for that. But he actually gives this one a few verses of attention, and I think he does that for a couple reasons. He wants to clarify it. He wants to give us crystal clear focus on what he's talking about. Um, and he adds some instruction, something that he doesn't do with the previous Beatitudes, Let's now read this out loud on the screen together. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
Verse 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, holy smokes, right? Not only does he say blessed are the persecuted, he clarifies it in verse 11. They insult you, they persecute you, they falsely say all kinds of evil about you because of me. Interesting, we'll come back to that. Verse 12, Jesus also then tells us what to do when it happens, not if you are persecuted. When, there's an assumption here, when you are persecuted, rejoice, verse 12, and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. You're in good company. They persecuted the prophets before you and they'll persecute you. You're in good company. It's how it works in the kingdom of God. In fact, um, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing here because um, I just imagine, like we've done a few times in this series, you imagine being one of the disciples sitting down on the hillside to hear Jesus teach this. You've been watching him go crazy, right? Oh my goodness, he's been healing people. He's casting out demons. He is teaching stuff we've never heard before. Crowds and crowds of people are flocking to us. Whoa, Jesus seriously, this guy is on fire. He might be the Messiah. Let's get around this guy and follow him because the crowds are coming. And then Jesus sits down and blows their mind with all these countercultural, backwards ways of thinking. And when he says, the last one, blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness, persecuted because of me, the dudes have to be sitting there going, um, yeah, Jesus, I'm pretty sure it doesn't work that way, Right? We're following you because, not because we want to be persecuted. Blessed are you who are well-liked by everyone. (laughs) Blessed are you who are in power and get to be the boss and get to tell other people what to do. Blessed are you who have so much power that no one can persecute you because we don't want to be persecuted, so we better be in power so no one can persecute us. We've done that before. That's no good. Blessed are the persecuted. Jesus, come on, man. But, friends, if I've learned anything in my life as a follower of Jesus, and those of you that have followed Jesus for any amount of time could they say the same, I'm sure. If we've learned anything, it's that Jesus has a pretty good track record for saying what he means. Right? Even if I don't get it. So let's dig into this one a little bit today, okay? All right, so here we go. Blessed are the persecuted. Um, You know, just even reading those words, holy smokes, I just think it's really easy because this one messes with us so much and it's so dicey that we usually would rather just kind of blow past this and get to the next part of the scripture, right? Or if we do try to grapple with blessed are the persecuted, it's very tempting to try to fit this into our own reality and to redefine what persecution really is. But from the verses that Jesus Uh, is speaking and talking about here. He's saying, you're persecuted. Blessed are you who are persecuted because of righteousness. He doesn't stop there, though, because I think real often we can get real subjective on what righteousness is and think I'm being persecuted for my righteous position. So he clarifies that next verse and says, you're persecuted because of me. So blessed are you who are persecuted because of Jesus, not Blessed are you who are persecuted because, well, people don't like my cause. Um, 
No, not because we're persecuted, because, well, people think I'm, you know, too forceful in how I argue, right? No, that's, that's not it. But if you're persecuted because of Jesus. See, there's so much tension in this because we really have to read through the scriptures because it talks a lot about this theme, but it's very hard for us to actually pay attention to the theme of, of being persecuted and suffering because we live in the United States of America. We are the richest nation on earth. We shouldn't have to do persecution, right? But, and I confess, I jump into that kind of mode of thinking because I live in this culture. Very easy to avoid it, but it's very hard to actually read the entirety of Scripture and make some sort of case that I am entitled to not be persecuted. Because it's all over Scripture. Being persecuted is all over Scripture. And so sometimes we go, well, okay, then I have to redefine what persecution is, right? Um, but friends, persecution, it's not something that we go looking for. We don't go looking for or seeking out persecution. Um, and it's not persecution. If somebody just doesn't like you, we don't get to call that persecution. If they don't like you or, or if people push back on you because you're a jerk when you talk about what you think the truth is and what you think righteousness are and you're really forceful about it, um, that's not persecution. If they don't like it, that's not persecution. And that happens inside churches. And we look at the life of Jesus, it happened a lot because um, the legalists, right, the religious people are the ones that went after and persecuted Jesus first. That's the first people that went after him. And you'll find that in church when people begin to experience and talk about life and love and grace and break free from legalism and performance and duty, the first thing that happens is, is, the, is the religious spirit comes out and makes a mess of things. But when you and I are experiencing that, sometimes that might be qualified, I suppose, as persecution. It can get to a level. But I'm thinking specifically about persecution from outside the church. Because sometimes we think we're being persecuted, or it's common to think we're persecuted when we put out our biblical values or our biblical ideas or scriptures um, to people outside the church and insist that they live by them. Now, listen. Whether you're a Christian or not, the wisdom of Jesus, the scriptures provide a pathway of good, right, moral living. It's a good thing to do. But we are followers of Jesus. They apply to us for sure, right? They're not written to the rest of the world. Like we want the rest of the world to adhere to our beliefs, but instructions for godly living are written specifically to us, the followers of Jesus, not to those who don't follow Jesus. I mean, heck, we have a hard enough time as Christians pulling off following Jesus and doing the instructions without putting them on everybody else, right? I mean, I, I sorry, I have a hard time following the instructions of Jesus myself without putting them on to everybody else outside the church. I don't know if you can relate, but that's me. <clears throat> Now, a while back, I was talking to a guy who was feeling real persecuted. Um, he had a hard time, you know, keeping jobs, and he had just gotten a job that he had for a few weeks, and a few of us were trying to help him sort of with application and job search process, maybe some interviewing stuff. And one thing we failed to do was to ask him why it was, why was it that he kept losing jobs? And it wasn't long. It didn't take long at all before the answer became very clear to me. Um, he let me and a couple of us, a couple guys know that he was in danger again of losing this job that he had just had for a few weeks, the one he currently had. And I said, wow, 
what's going on? Why do you think you're going to lose your job? It was an honest question. Like, I didn't suspect anything. Um, And he said, man, people just don't want to hear the truth. People can't handle the truth. I'm out here telling them the truth at work, but they just don't want to listen. Why are people so stubborn and deceived? Hmm. How many of you know that that doesn't go over so well in the workplace? (laughs) Um, And what I learned about this guy in the short amount of time that I was around him was some stuff that I think, at least two things that are really common to some well-meaning but immature Christians. So, one, one thing I learned, it's super clear and I think applies to all of us, is one, we have to remember that that your meaning, um, I'm sorry, your version of the truth is highly subjective. My version of the truth is highly subjective. And for this particular guy, he um, had what he'd been taught in church and read in the Bible and listened to from different teachings, which he also mixed with his political points of view, and he just wrapped them all up together as one And so there was biblical understanding, but then there was all this other stuff mixed in, treated as equal. And so he, in mixing it all together, decided that if anyone disagreed with his political views, um, that he thought it was his job to straighten them out in no uncertain terms and to let them know that God thought this way too. That doesn't go over very well because it's all subjective stuff, right? Especially when we start mixing it, it, it's really subjective. Um... Second thing, and I think this is a common error that I recognize that I make and have made, uh, even when he was explaining real biblical truth, like pull all the other opinion stuff out of it, he was explaining what he understood about biblical truth sometimes. Uh, he was abrasive, and you just can't do that. Like, you might be right, but you can't be abrasive. Dallas Willard said this. He says, one of the mo- <clears throat> Dallas Willard says, One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. I'll say that one again for myself. Um, One of the hardest things in the world is to be right and not hurt other people with it. My version of that, the dumbed-down version, is even if you're right, you don't get to be a jerk about it, okay? Okay. Um, I, I remember seeing a cartoon. I meant to have it on the screen, but, but there's this guy. He's, he's died, and he's standing at the pearly gates, and there's an angel with big wings looking through a book. And he keeps looking and keeps looking and keeps looking, and the guy goes, well, well I was a Christian. Like, I was a Christian, right? And the angel looks at him and says, well, yes, I guess you were a Christian, but you skipped the not being a jerk about it part. So... See, we might know that we are right about something, but we don't get to hurt people with our rightness. We don't get to be abrasive. And when we don't show grace or kindness and people want to fire us, that's not persecution. Like, I would have fired this guy too, right? You can't be a divisive jerk in the name of truth. And when people don't put up with that kind of stuff, it's not persecution. It's, it's just not. It's not. I want to give us a few examples of what real persecution actually looks like. I'm gonna start with even the New Testament and the early church. Persecution was very common. We read throughout the New Testament episodes where people would be persecuted for claiming the name of Jesus. 
In the early church, this was commonplace as well. And oftentimes, what it looked like was somebody was given the opportunity to either say, I renounce Jesus and I will not uh, proclaim his name anymore. I will not be a Christian. I renounce that so they can live. Some of them, especially in the early church, um, said, wow, my choice is renounce my faith and live or cling to my faith and I get killed or lose everything or my family gets killed. Okay, I'll opt for this one over here. Now, I have to be honest with you guys. I wish I could say I'm 1,000% sure that I would just renounce, you know, I would stick with it. No matter what, I wouldn't renounce my faith. I would never say no. I would never deny Christ. I wish that I could say that, but I know that there's a part of me that I wonder it was a part with those who did save their skin that were like, okay, God, I know you're forgiving and you can forgive us, so I'm going to go ahead and renounce my faith, but not really. You know my heart. I'm going to, right? I'm just honestly, like, that's quite a commitment for people to to do that and to live that way. One way that this came about was um, in the Roman uh, culture where most of the Christian world was encapsulated inside of for for much of the early history of the church. Uh, You could have all kinds of gods. The Romans didn't care how many gods you worshipped or who was gods. They just wanted to make sure that you knew and you would say, above all those gods, Caesar is Lord. By the way, do you know where we get our phrase, Jesus is Lord, from? It was a subversive statement to counter Caesar is Lord. So when we say Jesus is Lord, we need to remember that that was first spoken by people whose lives were in jeopardy for saying Jesus is Lord. They could lose their life for proclaiming Jesus as Lord, and many of them died for refusing to compromise because you will have no other gods, not any small gods, not any side gods, not any gods above. You will have no other gods before me. It's one of the core tenets of our Judeo-Christian faith, and people that clung to that oftentimes were killed, and I wonder, how did they do that? How did they do that? And I have to think that at least part of it was that they trusted, in order to be able to give up your life, they trusted that the promise of Jesus was true and real, and great was their reward in heaven. And to them, because of that, it was worth it. It was worth it. And what occurs to me, and this isn't some sort of guilt or shame thing that I'm putting on myself here, it just reveals to me, it's like shining a light. Their testimony shines a light on my own story and reveals a place in me that needs to be transformed because when I see their love for Jesus, their absolute trust that when they were persecuted, they were blessed, that shines a light on my own beliefs about what I expect from my comfortable American Christian life. And persecution has gone on, not just in the early church, but it's gone on. It's uh, alive and well today in our world as well. The stories and stats are staggering. Here's just a handful Pakistan right now, Shagufta Kusar and her husband Emmanuel, Christian couple, they're being held on death row. He is paralyzed, can't walk. Um, Their crime, blasphemy. Blasphemy because of text messages that they're accused of sending that didn't respect the God of that culture. All she has to do is renounce her faith 
Just renounce her faith. She and her husband, they would like to be freed to return to their children. All they got to do is renounce their faith. It's been six years. They're still in prison. They're on death row. They're going to be killed unless something happens or God comes through, but they will not renounce their faith. It's amazing. I used to work in an organization before I served here at Hope that we discipled um, Christians and pastors, mostly in very impoverished places, a lot of them in Southeast Asia. We would hear stories from Christians in that area. Um, beatings were common. Torture, sometimes uh, with electric shocks hooked up to parts of their body, and they're told all you got to do is renounce Christ, stop sharing your faith, and you will be set free to return to your families, but they will not renounce Jesus. And many of them give their lives. There's a report recently that came out on persecution of Christians, and specifically in areas like Asia, Iraq, uh, areas of Asia like Iraq and Egypt and Pakistan and China and North Korea. The report found that, quote, Christian women suffer the most. with reports of abductions, forced conversions, and sex attacks. Often is if a woman is raped, but she's a Christian, there's no punishment for the man who violated her, and everyone knows that in the area, that if a Christian woman is raped, they won't be punished, so Christian women are targets. A couple more. One, North Korea has long been recognized as, quote, the worst place in the world to be a Christian, with upwards of 70,000 Christians detained in harsh labor camps, 70,000 in North Korea detained harsh labor camps with reports of, quote, extrajudicial killings, forced labor, torture, persecution, starvation, forced abortion, sexual violence, and rape. This is today, friends. Just a year ago, an Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka, imagine the beauty of that country. A bunch of children are eating a meal together, getting ready to run into the sanctuary for Easter worship and celebration, and as soon as they get into the church, a bomb detonates, and many of them die. This happened in several churches that day in coordinated Attacks on Easter Day when the churches would be most full. And these stories here are just the tip of the iceberg of what happens today. Modern day persecution of Christians around the world. It's very sobering. It's very sad. And friends, persecution is real. Like it's real. And when I read those stories, you can be mad at me later. Just give me a minute here. I think about what we in America and what I've seen some churches describe as persecution. Um, in the USA, friends, when, when our government officials ask people to wear a mask to protect others from being sick when we come together for worship service or anywhere else, is that persecution? No. No. 
It's embarrassing to me with all these numbers skyrocketing that there are churches, friends of mine that are working in churches where it's like, ah, wear a mask or don't. And you wonder with the outbreak coming, there's a few places, but where's the most common place where people are gathering and not protecting each other? I hope the news media doesn't get a hold of that and do a story and like... One one of our friends um, that is not a believer, and sometimes understandably an angry cynic, has said, why is that church in California who has people in their church with COVID claiming religious persecution and the denying of their rights, and people are getting sick at their church and they just keep shouting louder? Why is that happening? In Tempe Town Lake, there's a guy touring, a worship guy, writes great songs. He's touring around the country and he's doing unmasked Concerts, let us worship is what he's calling it. It's like, dude, nobody's saying you can't worship. You don't have to have a thousand people around you to call that worship. <laughs> like, like it's, it's heartbreaking that, that I would wonder if I was standing with one of these persecuted Christians from another country and I dared to say that we're being persecuted, I would be embarrassed. Because that's not persecution, you guys. And it makes me wonder, <laughs> it makes me wonder that when persecution comes to us, will we be ready? Not if, because, right, Jesus didn't say if. He said when it comes. Will we have any clue what to do? Will we know at all what to do? I mean, the apostle Paul, when he was in prison and waiting to be executed, he wrote a letter to Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this is what Paul writes. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The word all there is not a throwaway. I'm not experiencing it, right? But it's not a throwaway. Paul means that everyone, everyone who publicly desires to live as a committed Christian will face some kind of resistance from the world for sure and persecution actually is what he says. And so as Americans, we want our rights. And I don't think it's a bad thing, right? Let's have court cases to free that Pakistani woman. Let's do what we can to get the Christians that are in prison in Turkey out. Let's do what we can. But we got to do that while remembering Jesus did give us some instructions on what to do when we are being persecuted. Um, He doesn't say um, to respond with lawsuits. Um, Although, again, like if somebody's in prison, I'm, I'm down with using the legal system. Um, I'm not down with using the legal system to sue so we can do whatever we want in a church service while there's a pandemic, but different, different, right? We don't respond with angry social media tweets. We don't protest. Our response, according to Jesus, is not to protest for our rights to do whatever we want to do. But in Matthew 5, just a little farther down the chapter from where we're studying right now, Jesus brings persecution up again. Verse 43, Jesus says this, you have heard it said, It was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, which is out of Leviticus, I believe, 18 or 19. And then Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Come on, Jesus, really love your enemies? And pray for those who persecute you. Come on, Jesus. 
And we're running out of time here, so I'm just going to summarize a few bullet points to just summarize where we've been and take us to uh, one more place. First of all, there's four things. First, let's be honest, friends, about what persecution is and isn't, what it, what it actually is. Let's, let's look at our brothers and sisters around the world who are really experiencing it and, and honor them by acknowledging that's persecution. Okay. Secondly, um, let's begin to wonder what it means that we are to expect persecution. Not if, but when. And again, let's not manufacture stuff that's not persecution and call it persecution. But let's wonder. Let's wonder. Uh, I don't like the idea, right? I'm a middle-aged, white, American male. We got the power around here. We don't get persecuted, right? And I'm tongue-in-cheek with that because we really are pretty entitled in the U.S., Um, There's not a lot of persecution that we really have to truly endure, at least on a wide scale. But we're to expect persecution. So let's do this. When we think about our brothers and sisters around the world, let's pray. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters. And then let's do the really tricky one. Let's also pray for, like Jesus told us, the people who are persecuting Christians. That's a tough one. My friend who I've been telling these stories about from the place I used to work with. She's been persecuted. Her husband's been persecuted. And they make a regular practice of praying for the people and the families of those who persecute them. It blows my mind because I just don't get it. But I'm so humbled and proud of them. And the last thing I just want to spend the rest of our time looking at, which is only going to be a few minutes, don't worry. We won't miss the Cardinals kickoff by much. Last thing is, let's ask Jesus to help us to trust him. Let's ask him that whatever we face in this life, that we could believe that if it's really bad, that his reward to us will be worth it. That's the one I wrestle with. At my last job again, the ministry I was with, my coworker that I've talked about here, she was telling about this encounter of a group of pastors in Asia where there is widespread persecution. I think she told this story when she and her husband were here a year and a half ago. She was doing a training with pastors and leaders, um, and then they go out and train people in their areas, and it's, it's, it's amazing what God's doing. But she says this, as she was doing that training, they took a break. She's sitting on the porch. She says, I'm listening to the testimonies from these pastors on, on how things were going in their area. One pastor shared how severe the persecution had become in his area. Beatings, arrests, and church burnings had become the norm. Can you imagine? Beatings, arrests, and church burnings. That's normal. Can you imagine we show up here and somebody's burned our church down? And, oh, well, that happens. I mean, that was normal, right? My friend responded. She said that she was really sorry to hear what was happening. The pastor said, no, no, oh, no, don't be sorry. It's a good thing. It purifies the church and draws us close to God. And anyway, he said, he said, when we are in jail, Jesus sits next to us and holds our hand. That pastor, those believers, They're not as educated as us, as me. If you've sat in church for more than a year, you've heard more Bible than they have. 
They don't have more education, more theological knowledge, but they do have something. They know something. They know something. He knows something that I don't know. He experiences and believes the truth that I've never had to face, that when we are persecuted, we're actually blessed. Jesus, Jesus was right after all. See, that's the kicker for me, right? That to trust Jesus so much that if I had persecution happen to me, I would go, oh, there's a blessing in this. I'm gonna be drawn closer to God. And when I look at the heroes of Christianity back in history and today and see how they don't run from persecution, they cling to the name of Jesus, it just reveals a place in me where I wanna grow. I wanna be transformed. I wanna be like them, like that. They have this love for Jesus, this absolute trust that when they are persecuted, they are blessed. And when I think about that, it just shines a light on my beliefs about what I expect from my own comfortable Christian American life. I really want to learn to value that eternal reward that is in store. And friends, there's a couple ways to learn it and learning it the hard way by going through it. That's not the way I want to learn it. I hope it doesn't happen that way, but I want to know Jesus in the fellowship. Anybody know the next word? The fellowship of his sufferings, the Apostle Paul says. Wow. So, so much there. So friends, when Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted, we have to trust that he really knew what he was talking about. Like he was just not throwing something out there. Um, And the truth is that Jesus knew exactly what he was talking about because he was persecuted his entire life long. His entire life, Jesus was persecuted, right? When he was a baby, Herod tried to have him killed. (laughs) His family, when he was a toddler, had to flee to Egypt to avoid danger. At his first sermon in Luke chapter four, he was in his hometown in his own synagogue of his, where he grew up and the congregation there got offended by what he preached. They ran him out of town. They tried to throw him off a cliff and kill him. And then through his ministry, because of his love for outcasts, he was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton because he would not cater to the racism toward Romans or Samaritans in his day. He was then called a half-breed and a Samaritan. Um, Because Jesus didn't kiss up and play nice to the hypocritical religious leaders of the day, people said, well, he's in league with the devil. Because Jesus didn't do what they expected when they all wanted a Messiah to come and recruit an army to take things over, (laughs) because he didn't do that, they turned on him. The zealots who really believed that that was the way forward included a man named Judas who betrayed him to try to force his hand, make him grab the power over a game. And Jesus was denied by Peter, put on trial by religious leaders who should have embraced him. Instead, they condemned him. And in front of the crowd that he had performed miracles and showed love, they mocked him. The soldiers beat him. The Roman soldiers crucified him. This, friends, is Jesus. He knew persecution. So when he says, blessed are the persecuted, he knows he's not calling us to some empty thing. 
You know, they used Jesus' words against him while he was hanging on the cross. They would say, look, you did this. You saved others. Can't you save yourself? And I wonder how many of them had maybe even heard him teach something like, blessed are the persecuted. (laughs) And they see him hanging on a cross, kind of the epitome of persecution, wouldn't you say? I wonder how many of them wondered. Well, there you go, Jesus. Blessed are the persecuted, huh? What do you think of that now? What do you think of that now, Jesus? Because when Jesus hung on the cross, he didn't look very blessed, did he? He didn't look blessed at all. Jesus was crucified by a kingdom where might makes right. You threaten somebody, if somebody threatens you, you threaten them back. Somebody gets you, you get them back. Somebody hurts you, you get them worse. And so they hung him on a cross with other criminals at a place called Calvary. And the message that they were trying to send in the kingdom of Rome and the kingdom of this world, might makes right. The strongest get to do whatever they please, whether it's right or not. That's the way the kingdoms of this world have always worked. They knew, right? Rome knew. (laughs) We've done this before. This will be the end of this subversive Messiah guy because the Romans knew that what happens at Calvary stays at Calvary, but not this time. Not this time. (laughs) What happened at Calvary on the third day? The persecution that was intended has now spread all over the world and brought beauty because with Jesus, persecution couldn't stop him. Lies and betrayal couldn't stop him. Insults and slander and hostility and rejection and mocking and evil could not stop Jesus. Death could not stop Jesus. Persecution could not stop Jesus And so this Jesus that knows exactly what he's talking about when he says, blessed are you when you are persecuted because of me, he knows because he's been there. He knows because he's been there. In Jesus' world, in Jesus' story, he's saying, you're in good company. The prophets were persecuted, so will you be as well. You're in good company And then he tells us the impossible for me to comprehend. In verse 12, he says, rejoice and be glad. Great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice and be glad. Jesus knows something, friends. He knows what he's talking about, and I want to know him. I want to trust him. I want to trust his words and his teaching. Don't you? I just hope I don't have to learn it the hard way. Worship team, will you come? Friends, all of these sayings that we've been looking at, these are descriptions of the gospel, the kingdom of God, the way of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God includes things that are so upside down that even blessed are you when you're persecuted, there's a twist that actually brings it to something that would make us blessed when we're persecuted. Because God is that good. He is that good. Don't be surprised when persecution comes your way. Don't be surprised because it has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. But friends, no matter if we face it or not in our lifetime, here's the good news. You're going to be okay. You and I, if we face persecution, will be okay because millions have gone before us and faced and gone through persecution 
See, there's no need to fear. There is no need to fear. And I promise you, if it happens to me, I'm going to be afraid in it, but I'm going to have to remind myself what God says, fear not, I am with you. I am with you. And when I have confidence that he is with me and holding me close, I know that I can go through anything. I can even come out the other end of anything, trusting that he is at work to bring good from it. He didn't cause it, but he will bring good from it. Friends, when you go through persecution or any other trial in your life, you do not need to fear that God has abandoned you. He is always with you, holding you close. He sees you. He is with you. Because of that, friends, we can dare to trust that he will grow us in believing that what he says is true. Because we are never alone, we can trust Jesus. Will you stand with me as we sing together?